this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? We are. Good evening. Good afternoon. Hello. And good morning. Um, is this podcast number 22? 22. That's a nice wow. beanie you've got there. Thank you. Mm. It's cold. It is. It's gone cold. It's the merry month of April. and uh, It was and like 115 re- degrees here last week. Right. And we had the air conditioning on one day. She means it was, 30, it was 31 for yeah. those folks that speak normal. <laughs> um, and now it's freezing. And now it's, yeah, it's cool. Got my cozies on. Uh-huh. I was out there this morning doing the... The rubbish. Doing the rubbish. Your favorite, <laughs> Your favorite day of the week is rubbish day. Anyway, so here we are. What are we talking about today? We are talking about something that's absolutely critical. It's on my mind. Oh, It's the, um, what I would call the critical nature of the therapeutic relationship. Wow. And it's so interesting because Hahnemann speaks about it not. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where I just find it fascinating that I do believe it's an excellent, excellent critical augmentation to our work. Yeah. yeah. Do you think do you think that Hahnemann was a kind of a a warm guy, a cozy practitioner, a person you could talk to? I mean, he was in, he was born in 1755, like yeah, in so, Germany. Yeah. So, but I, I mean, I don't know. Do you think he was more prickly? Uh, there was that story. I think I've talked about it on the podcast. One of my favorite stories about when the American actress turned up in uh, in Paris, yeah. and Hahnemann was sitting there, and he was all shriveled up, and you know, he was a little <laughs> tiny guy by that point, and he was surrounded in a cloud of pipe smoke, yeah. and Melanie was taking the case, yeah. and then. At a certain point, was it that he realized she was German or something, and then he perks up, yeah. and then he starts speaking to her in German, and he's really animated and friendly and all of that. Um, makes me think that he's, you know, maybe not a crotchety guy. The other thing is um, uh, when he sends, he sent a letter to Herring. I actually quite love that. Wait, there's a whole lot of action going on here. <laughs> you okay now? I just turned myself into a pretz. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wondered how long you were going to be able to sit in that position. Oh. Okay. You good now? I'm all good. All right. So there's there's also the letter that Hahnemann sent to Herring yeah. in which he included a silhouette of himself. And he and he talks about how um, uh, they captured, you know, sort of the fine shape of his head, but, but perhaps not his demeanor. Mm. Um, and, you know, sort of the implication is that he looks sort of stern mm. uh, in it and that he's actually a softer person. Um you know how I have that, the, there's the picture that I use um, when I'm doing presentations of the things that Hahnemann says we shouldn't do, and it's the stern Hahnemann face. Do you know the picture I'm talking about? Mm, yeah. He's yeah. got the really mean look. Mm. Um, but then there are all those other ones that my favorite one of him where he's wearing the beanie, mm. um, and he, he has such a soft mm. face. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, when it comes to case taking, you know, he gives us, when, when it comes to the work we do, right. I find it interesting that he gives us the posture we should adopt. And then he tells us, do this and this and this. Yeah. But it's pretty general. Yeah. It's basically get information. But you need to be unprejudiced. Sound senses, attention to detail. Sure. And fidelity. Fidelity, yeah. And in tracing the picture of the disease. And 
Um, and, and that's kind of as close as you get. And then, of course, just jump forward a couple hundred years or jump forward, say, 150 years. Then you've got the world of psychology, psychoanalysis, psychotherapy. It's not even 150 years. I mean, that happened in the 19th century. Well, I'm talking, I wasn't talking Freud, actually. Okay. Because when you when you start to get into the that that world yeah. you realize that they are having quite robust conversations yeah. about the best way to work with people and that's not too far away from us you know we work with people right we tend to want to get good information that we want out of it, out of them which is a little different heck yeah but um, to get the, to get good information um, there's i think there's so much that we can learn and the therapeutic relationship part where i come from with it is that that in the kind of fifties, late fifties, sixties, nineteen fifties. Yeah, sorry, okay, just for clarity. Thank you. <laughs> in the nineteen sixties, you've got this guy coming along in psychoanalysis, and he says, "I'm sorry, everyone. I think you've got it completely wrong, because I've found that the best thing to do with my clients is just be with them." Not try and do something to them. Right. Not not even try and extract information out of them. And and that's the that's the beginning of the the kind of the therapeutic relationship as a an arena to study. Yeah. And there's been a whole lot of scholarship into um, in into Carl Rogers, and you know I remember reading this book by I think it's Mary M E R R Y talking about how being with somebody in their suffering is as much, if not a better thing to be able to do for them and with them in the moment mm. than any other technique. And I, I've always kind of listened to that and realized that what I do in my clinic, at least in my work, in my clinical work, is, is kind of basic old-style Hahnemannian homeopathy, but with that therapeutic uh, approach, mm. you know. Yeah, totally. It's it's interesting. Interesting because it's so. There's so many. There's so many threads that I want to pull yeah, from good. what you just talked about. Um, but I want to start with something that's sort of unsaid so far, which is the ways in which it's gone. Sort of what it probably looked like in Hahnemann's time. I'm going to say he didn't sit for two hours with people. No, he sat for 20 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so now you've got people who are spending, you know, one, two, three, four hours. I heard um, recently that there's this trend where people are seeing a homeopath for as many visits as it takes for them to get the case. Now, I don't mean to be crass here, but I can't imagine that that's a proper business model. Like, no. Well, it's an expensive or an expensive or endeavor. You, Mm. Right, or are you sort of making this an elitist sort of, mm. you know, Jungian analytical sort of platform? Yeah, I actually think what I just said before is different to Jungian analysis. Though. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm just, you know, we're talking about these hours and hours and hours because, it, and and like every conversation that we have, it boils down to, you know, my primary research question: What the hell is homeopathy? Yeah, good. Right, because the the question is, what is the intention with yeah. a visit? And and I think. I like what you said about how your clinical um, experience is a combination of, you know, Rogers, of letting the client speak, which, of course, Hahnemann, you know, 
dictates to us, let the client say mm. what they have to say, right? So that we can get the language of the disease. Um, and then Hanumanian homeopathy, which is, of course, to perform all those tasks to make sure you have the information. I think there's this other sort of cultural, I don't know, not cultural is the wrong word, but like there's a way in which homeopaths hold space mm-hmm. that other modalities don't. Yep. And we provide a, we provide a modern day service that's really needed. Totally. I think that's fascinating. Right? Yeah. And that holding space is almost what I was talking about. And it, 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 with what I said before right. about Rogers. Yeah. So it kind of, it's early on in the podcast, given our usual way that we roll to sort of get right to the heart of something. Well, but let's not mess around. Let's not mess around because it just brought me to a conversation that you and I had very early on in our professional um, conversations, which was. You were concerned enough about the work of the homeopath that it might only have been the therapeutic relationship that was providing the, you know, that that kept clients Mm. with you. I don't want to misstate, but I I would love for you to talk about that. Well, I think... Or did I bring it on too early? Have we not done No, no, not at all. Because I think, you know, when we start talking about the therapeutic relationship... Yeah. We start talking about the way that we engage with clients. Right. And I started deliberately by saying, well, you know, was Hahnemann a nice bloke? Was he a person that you'd want to spend time with? Yeah. And my, my, I mean, for me, the answer would be, don't think so. And so the criticism, a common criticism, a legitimate, it's a bit lazy as a criticism of homeopathy, is that, oh, you people are nice. And so you get results because clients like to sit with you and talk with you and have an hour with you and you've got these rituals. Oh, you know, you... Listen, then you give the the tablet, you know, and and that's a little, you know, and there's all sorts of parallels in Catholicism and Christianity and ritual, and therefore, therefore, it's an elaborate placebo. You've heard that criticism. You yeah. must have heard it a thousand times. And I think that that's not worth that. That's not worth that. That's not. We don't don't need to shy away from that. We need to understand it. But it's if we talk about the placebo. And homeopathy is a placebo. We've got to be a little bit more sophisticated about it. Did you know that the placebo response in medicine is higher in Italy than it is in Japan? <laughs> no, but I could have. But if you would have asked me, I probably could have made that up. Yeah. That is so funny. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, it's, I should have boned up a bit, but um, I've not really read a number of those, you know, sort of placebo studies that I kind of got fascinated in. But there's there's all sorts of things known about placebo, and that's one yeah, of them. Yeah. And it's, you know, like generally it's kind of accepted that if you do an intervention, then you'll fix 30% of the people. Yeah. Right? And so that's the starting point. But it's a bit higher in Italy, and it's a bit lower in Japan. <laughs> You're not, laughing. I'm because, laughing because I, I totally get that. <laughs> yeah, correct. And so if, if, we are not, if we're running at 30%, then I'm sorry – you know, homeopathy to me is a general effect because we're nice people. But who's running at 30%? I don't know anyone in homeopathy that's getting 30% uh, success measured with however way you want to measure it. Right. Like in our, in the um, studies that we've done, outcomes-based studies in our clinic, our results are over 80%, aren't they? Uh, they're f- fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, therefore, to me, just on kind of that alone, I mean, if someone's listening to this and they're not a homeopath and they don't know about homeopathy, they, they're going to have to say, well, I'll take your word for it, that you're successful. 
But in all of the audits that we have, with the anecdotal evidence we have, with the science that we have, right. homeopaths are getting general effects, yep. clearly, but specific effects from the remedy. And we get both, you know. And that's where it's it's not a legitimate argument that, that homeopathy's uh, effectiveness right. is because of placebo. And, of course, there's the other arguments about chickens and cows and... Yeah. You know, getting a placebo response out of a brown-eyed cat, brown-eyed cow, right, is 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 a long shot. And and I think that you know that those plant studies and then the the animal studies, yeah. So the vet studies, not the animal laboratory studies, but the vet studies completely dismiss that argument. Totally. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I don't even really think about that argument anymore. Oh right. About but, placebo. Yeah. I mean, because so. I want to I want to bring this back though because you know this you and I have had this conversation so many times and in so many different permutations around mm. you know what do we do and what I just remembered a conversation I had once I'm sorry I'm going to interrupt because um, I was given the job of looking after Peter Fisher when he came to Australia back in the day explain who peter fisher is for people who might well, not the know the late great peter fisher <laughs> the late great peter fisher the well, homeopath to the queen yeah so he was just this extraordinary i'm gonna say savant i don't know I, i'd like to know more about him but i met him a number of times yeah the last time i met him was in baltimore at that conference yeah. i went to yeah. um and uh and and he he was really standoffish with me but i think that was his kind of nature yeah. until the last couple of times I met him, he was really friendly. Anyway, so uh, I had to I had to um, um, escort him around yeah. in Sydney. They, the the folks that flew him out asked me to do that, and um, so we had a few dinners together. But in one of them, I think I just I might have been saying something similar to what we were just talking about, and he said, "Yep." I think we. I think it's the job of the homeopath to maximise everything they've got, and he used those words. He said, "It's the you need to maximise everything, including the therapeutic relationship." Right. And so, and 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 even then, and then we went on and talked about other things. But what I took from that was that you see, it's not about being nice. It, that's not what the therapeutic relationship is, and that's what. In the scholarship around it, that's not what they're talking about. Right. The core skills of the practitioner in the therapeutic relationship are to be congruent, authentic, and this expression, unconditional positive regard. What does that mean? Unconditional positive regard. Yeah. It, it's the unprejudiced observer. Oh, wow. No, it's total parallel to Hahnemann. Yeah. So the And then oh, one yeah. more, empathy. Yeah. Is, yeah. So the, there's four core competencies. And you want to, if you want to be a, a an effective helper, yeah, which we are, then you want to have all of those. So I think we're empathetic, and I like empathy as a skill to cultivate because it's not leaking. You know, you can be empathetic to suffering, yeah, and and present and not leak and and try and yeah, you know, rescue and all that stuff. But the un, and then to be congruent, I think, is a really interesting one because that yeah. means you've got to show up, yeah, and you've got to. Be there fully. Yeah. Like I think that's to be congruent means you've got to be present. You've got to. And how do you teach that? I don't know how you teach that. Well, I think this practice. 
Right. And modeling good behavior. I think that's why, right. you know, it kind of comes back to some of the things that we talk about with clinical training in homeopathy. Mm. You know, it takes practice. We were in clinic, I think it might have been the clinic that I ran last Saturday, where a student said they were they were quite choked up or, yep. you know, like a lot of emotion came up and they said, thank God I was not doing, I was not like on you know, in front of people. And it takes, it takes a while to sort of develop. It's not, it's not like you develop a thick skin, but you, you sort of sit in the face of human suffering mm. in so many ways that you, you understand that energy pattern and so that you can match it and, and, and be present in it, be congruent with it without it taking you over. It yep. takes practice, mm, mm, mm. you know, and I think this expectation that homeopaths who are not trained clinically, who do not sit in the classroom to discuss oh all God. of those things, mm. you know, if you're just watching videos of cases, like I cannot imagine how much pressure it would, like, how could you, I don't know. Anyway, I, I, it's a lot to ask of a student. I mean, it really is. we spend hours and hours and hours reviewing these things in it is in preparation for being able to hold space and do that job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do. Yeah. The third one is authenticity. And I th I think that's a, that's a really interesting thing to explore. That just means you've got to be present authentically. Yeah. And that's where that... I, I'm not so sure about the title of all of this because it's usually described as person-centered approaches. Right. But that means that in the literature, that means that your job is to be present, a, a human first. Yeah. Like you're, you're suffering. I'm just a human here. Yeah. We're having a conversation. I happen to have some skills and those skills are homeopathic, but that's third. And so first I'm a person in front of you authentically listening to your story. And Roger says, that's the most valuable thing. Yeah. And then, oh, okay. I'm also listening, you know, writing, uh, gathering information yeah. that's quietly going on in the background. So I'm not leading with the homeopathy. Yeah. Now that I don't think you could say that that's what Harman ever did, but it's it is it, it, they're definitely complementary. And then that last one, that unconditional positive regard, unconditional. So that means neut neutrality. Yeah. Uh, with with a um, with a focus of. Um, Oh, I don't even know what to say. Uh, but with a focus of positivity towards the person. Right. You know, I'm I'm here and we'll get somewhere. We'll go on a journey together. Yeah. It's almost that that kind of under, underpinning statement, all of that. So um, actually uh, in clinic yesterday we had a follow-up and it was of this woman that was struggling with whole lot of things, mainly physical, but there's a big background to it. And we're on our fifth consultation. Yeah. And I, I often end up saying to the students, look, we'll just start here because she's going to stick with us. We've got a nice relationship. And so she'll come back. We'll get there. Yeah. And with this one yesterday, it was so interesting because what I ended up hearing was that when she was talking about something, her voice just changed. And then she did it again. And then I, I kind of... I waited until she'd finished a sentence. And I said, what's with this voice of yours that changes? Oh, interesting. So that is that. That is bringing, you know, you bring the observation into the room. And 
Right. You know, clients can't get up. They can't move. They can't escape from that. It's really difficult. So then we explored that. Right. And then she started giving us magic information. Right. It just started to emerge. Is this the case that we went over last night? No. No, that was a different one. Okay. No. No, Um, that was a much tougher one. But, you know, that's what I mean. Because I believe that when we've established a, a really heartfelt and legitimate therapeutic relationship, we can get a close similar and a close similar and a close similar and a close similar, and then we'll get there. We will get there. Well, it's interesting when I... So this week um, was the completion of the um, uh, autoimmune block that I do with a semester for students. Yeah, right. Big culmination set of... I have six sessions in a row with them that are pulling so many of those threads together and yeah. and it's like I, I it's my favorite week although it means they're getting to the end of their didactic learning but Don't anyway i know um but one of the things so i have um i have a client a case that i teach and some people listening to this they might have seen i um taught it at a conference some years ago it was a woman who um had past tense ms um nine years uh, to resolution of her symptoms, just four different remedies given, you know, m- lots of repetition of dose, obviously. But um, anyway, there was, it's very interesting because, you know, when I teach, I have videos of her because she was gracious enough to teach her case with me a few times live. And one of the things that she talks about so much was the therapeutic relationship. Mm. And she said, and this this blows me away because I it's it's in one of the video clips that I teach. She says, "Denise stuck by me through it all." And I mm. thought to myself, we as practitioners think of it the other way around mm. that the clients stick by us. Mm. But in reality, if we really dissect that statement, it really is an aberration of expectation to mm-hmm. think that mm-hmm. if we're saying, "Oh, the clients stick by us." It's first of all, it, it, it speaks to the lack of confidence that we might have in the job that we're doing on one hand. On the other hand, it could also speak to the fixer idea. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the conversations that's a very important part of the autoimmune, you know, the complex, the 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 series of lectures that we give on complex case management is is the the time that it takes for the physical body to catch up. Like you give a you give a homeopathic remedy, you shift the dynamic disease. That's the energy. But you still have matter in the body. The physical body has to heal. Hmm. And in the case of a degenerative neurological condition, you've got to rebuild a nervous system. That You don't give one remedy and the person gets out of their wheelchair and walks away. you know. And, and there's this weird sort of expectation that you give a homeopathic remedy and you know, people start levitating and, you know, and, then, and, and also that... And then what? Right. And, and that the pill is taking the place of personal responsibility mm. in healing, you know, all the things in the homeopathic diet that Hahnemann talks about, all the lifestyle and regimen. You know, in this in the lecture, I go through, you know, how many times in the organ on Hahnemann mentions, you know, regimen, how many times he re- mentions obstacles, in other words, the things that get in the way of our healing. And so this, you know, the therapeutic relationship is also the, it's the glue, right? It's the, it's the way that we say to our clients, I mean, I say this in the beginning of, 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 you know, when I'm taking on a really complex case, like I'll stick with you. Like I'm here, this is my job. It's going to take time and we're going to do it together. Um, and we're going to talk about it over the course of the healing 
all the ways in which, you know, we can understand the healing process because people go through all these different stages during healing. Like, okay, so if I go back to the case that I taught last week, um, you know, I've got a slide that has a can of Diet Coke on it because this client, she, you know, she drank Diet Soda, drank Diet didn't Coke. She, didn't she turn up to a consultation? With a with, Diet Coke. Yeah. And, she, and we laughed later on where she said, I can't believe you let me into your you know, into your office with a can of Diet Coke. I was like, it's not my body. It's like, I can't, I'm not going to judge what someone else is doing. I can very gently say, this is not helping, you know. Mm. But people, you know, until you hear it, until you hear it in your own mind, you don't always make the change. (laughs) Right? And then at a certain point she did. Mm. But that therapeutic relationship was, you know, that was the glue. So how do you teach that, you know? Yeah, I mean... Because you're totally right. And that's, you know, when I... Because here's a number. So I I worked out, I did an audit, I think it was the... might be in 2012 when I did another audit of yeah. my practice over the... It might have been five years. And what I noticed from the audit I did in 2006 was that then I saw people eight times. But by 2012, on average, I saw people 12 times. Uh-huh. And so, you know... Wait, that, that's it? Yeah. What do you mean? That's the number of consultations? No, average. That's the number of average consultations per person. So some people I see once, but that means I see some folks 24 times. Right. You know? Do you Have you done that? No, I'm fascinated because it's never occurred to me because, you know... Oh, I actually did it because I I got asked a, a question, a financial question by a student. Like, you know... Can you project into the future? How do you project income? Right. And it's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Because if you have a busy week, you have a busy week. And if you don't, and then there's the discounts and the yeah. pro bono, and then there's the folks that give you, you know, a tip. And then the tip. You don't get tips? No. Wait, you're kidding. No, I've only ever had a couple of tips. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, actually, it comes up in class all the time. That is so. No, I've never gotten a tip. Yeah. And on the I tip Here's everybody. A um, <laughs> but I um, I do have two clients that pay me more than my rate. Right. Well, that's a um, tip. But they are also they are homeopaths. Oh, really? They are junior in practice to me, and they charge a lot more than I do. Are you and kidding? I think it's like a yeah. Wow, that's amazing. But anywho, um, oh, I totally forgot what I was saying. I'm still with the tip. No, no, go back because it was before the tip. Uh, how many? <laughs> how many clients do how I many see? Clients, yeah, yeah twelve. Yeah, twelve's the number. Wow, I would be so curious because I, I couldn't even fathom it. But okay, now that I'm thinking it through, there are definitely people that I've only seen a couple of times. Are you saying that that seems low? Yeah, totally. Really? Oh my gosh! But that's so amazing because I don't hear you rebooking your clients. I hear you saying to your clients, "Call me when you need me." Yeah. That's what you do, right? I do, but I have people... I you mean, gotta, we got to get a student onto this. I think oh it's my really gosh. important. I have people, though... I mean, I think about this. I've, I work with families, and I'm generations into these families, right? Where I, I... And sometimes, you know, and part of it maybe is the construction of a practice. Like, I've, so on one hand, okay, <laughs> uh, now that I'm thinking this through, because people say to me sometimes, well, how do you keep taking on new clients? Like, how is your practice not totally full? And I'm like, well, because people get well. So sometimes people get well and they just don't need to come back. Yeah, the back door is open and the the front door is open. Exactly. And so sometimes people don't come back. They come back years later. Yeah, totally. Right? I just submitted a case um, uh, for 
Jeremy Sher's upcoming Krypton book. Uh, and um, it was interesting writing up the case that I saw this guy for a couple of years, and then I didn't see him for a year, uh, maybe 18 months or something. And then he came back when he had a relapse. So he, he was doing really well, and then he had a relapse. Uh, anyway, but... Um, but I think the, the structure of a practice is also different because I think about some of these families that I work with where, you know, they're, they're big families and I'll be working with a couple of generations within the family. Mm. And so even though I might not see each individual person every six to eight weeks or something like this, I'm seeing somebody in that family. You know what I mean? And so, uh, uh, yeah. Gosh. Anyway, sorry, I just totally went tangential because you got me in my own head thinking about that question. It's a good one. Uh, um, but I want to go back to the to something, though, which is um, one of the things that concerns me about the therapeutic relationship is when it is overemphasized to the, to the point where people don't understand what they do as homeopaths. Got it. Because if you... Because it's still a good service. Right. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. No, but here's the no, thing. no, 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 totally. But, but can I just stop? Because yeah. I think really it's really important because I don't want to be misinterpreted. I found myself this week being misinterpreted a lot. Yeah. And so I'm not I'm talking about analysis yeah. using psychotherapeutic analysis. That's kind of, that's what they do. Yeah. But a person-centered approach to case-taking, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's that's it. So anyway, keep going. Well, and, and I'm talking about the yeah. other thing, which yeah. is I think... You know, to, to learn to do homeopathy well and to hold a case over years to unravel the deepest levels of chronic disease is not easy. And it goes far beyond the four principled, you know, match it Monday kind of idea that you would do for a cough or for a true acute issue. Magic Monday? Oh, match it. It's like the, you know, people talking about matching it on the remedies and their different Facebook groups. Match it whatever. Monday. Match it. I made that one up. All right. Um, but there's... but. So what happens is that people then use this therapeutic idea and then it becomes all these other things that people add to their practice, right, that take it away from the homeopathy, which is fine. I have no problem with that because I think however people can step in to hold healing space and to use whatever special sauce they have to be a healer, great. But but when you use a homeopathic medicine... Mm. As a part of that dynamic, when it doesn't take into account everything that medicine does, that's when I get my panties in a bunch. Right. Boy, do you ever. I really do. <laughs> so that, cause that's what I, so that's the specific effect. That's where the homeopath is, is overemphasizing the general effect. Yes. You know, you, and perhaps conduct, doing bland homeopathy. And minimizing the specific effect because there's not enough energy going into the, to the to the technical part yeah. of what we do. And the technical part is you're dealing with a, a body, with a, sick a sick a sick person, yeah. right? So like when oh. when we talked about this before about like sometimes we'll see these cases, or sometimes we hear it from you know students who have received homeopathy care in ways that are somewhat divergent from you know kind of a core understanding of homeopathy. And, and they've received remedies based on psychological profiling that could run counter to the chronic presentation. Yeah. And that is not good, I think. Yeah. Is that... Uh, 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 is that what? Uh, uh, well, I was accused of being judgmental. 
And I, I hope, on, and like you, explaining yourself because people hear what they want to hear and then come back with an accusation. Oh, well, the exact opposite of what you said. You know, it's right? just ridiculous. I'm, I don't feel that I'm being judgmental. I feel, and I also feel like, you know, we've got to take responsibility for just the evolution of homeopathy as it has expanded. It's like, I don't know. I don't think we need to point fingers or make, make blame, mm. but we need to take responsibility and have accountability. Mm. That's not judgy. No, that's not judgy. But you do hear some things and boy, do you holler. Who, me? Yeah. I mean, I don't know about hollering, but I definitely, <laughs> I definitely get a flush. The neighbors have approached me oh. on, a, on, a, on, a, on a regular basis. Right. And we don't have near neighbors. Let's just be clear. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Um, but so so this is a thing, though. So the therapeutic relationship is is something to be cultivated. Oh my god, and, absolutely! And every person has a different way that they deliver care. Like you know, we get because of the the, the construction and the infrastructure of you know um, AG and the homeopathy health network. Lots and lots and lots of people come to us for care, and we are then referring you know to folks in our um in our community these chronic cases that come in right so cases come in they either go to the AHE teaching clinic or they go to students in supervision or there's tons of overflow then it goes to you know who do you recommend and the way that we recommend is based on you know a combination of bedside manner oh. and you know and um yeah. just the types of people that a particular particular practitioner is really good at handling and knowledge of homeopathy to be able to deal with the complexity of their, you know, their, their physiological suffering. It's like, you know, it's kind of complex, right? Like, who would you say is like the ideal, like, what do you feel like you're good at? Therapeutic relationship. I, I, I'm a, is that what you mean? I'm a good listener. I would say yeah. if I've got a superpower, you know, your superpower's reverse parking. Yeah, parallel parking. Parallel parking totally. into spaces that are smaller than the car. Yeah, and the frittata. <laughs> That's those, a good thing. Those, those are my two superpowers, parking Both and often frittata. happen on a Saturday or a Sunday. Yeah. Can I just confirm that, folks? That yeah. you, you're, you have two magic superpowers. That's outside of homeopathy. Inside homeopathy, mine is... It's interesting because... Um, I'm a, I'm a good listener, yeah. and then I'm often saying to students, I didn't hear that, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I, I, but I, I believe that I listen yeah. to the, the critical parts of a case that are important. You know, my case notes are kind of usually a couple of pages. Out of Unlike first... mine. Well, you're a stenographer. You can I, type. No, I'm not. I don't type my notes. I handwrite. What are you talking about? I don't know. Why did I say that? Yeah. Yeah, I, you totally do. Yeah. Or whatever. Um, anyway, but anyway, reason... no, you asked me a question and now I want to answer it because I'm desperately trying to think of things that I'm good at. Okay. But the reason that I understand <laughs> is because I also want people who are listening who are practitioners to ask that of themselves. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So I, because I think that um, <laughs> sometimes when, when you're a newer practitioner, <laughs> and we can talk more about this, Al, it's fine. Um, I want to be good at something. Yeah, you're you're good at so many things. Uh, um, digging holes in the garden. Yeah, tending to the roses. Uh, maybe not managing the aphids. They're awesome at the moment. Are no they? aphids. Oh, good. Aphid-free zone. 
Even on the kale in the hoop house? Oh, those aphids. Yeah. I'm only interested. I don't care about the kale. Yeah, I do. Anyway, so I want, but you know, one of the things is that um, newer practitioners, you know, they hit those speed bumps when they get into independent practice. And I think this is especially important if you're practicing and you don't have community around you. I mean, you know, come find us. We get space for everybody at our table, but um, for, you know, if you need support. But the, but I think you hit this frustration where it's like, oh my gosh, I can't do this, or how do I get more clients, or blah, 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 right? Uh, uh. And one of the ways that you can reflect is to think, well, what do I do best in order to be able to really concentrate on the and develop those skills, and then think about the ones that you struggle with, yeah. right? To to really cultivate that, because what I what makes me sad is when I hear about people who have good homeopathy training and they don't get over that first hump and then they go to do splintered off things or I'm going to I'm going to buy this course and I'm going to take this shortcut and I'm going to do all these adjunct things uh. that move them further and further away from just studying the core uh, uh. of homeopathy that can, is actually what makes them more successful or at least can help them to be more successful. Hmm. Yeah, I know. And um, what I was thinking about is that uh because I realized I was going to say something. Because you asked the question, what are you good at? Yeah. Right? That's where I'm at. What am I good You're at? You're still thinking? Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I am a good listener, but I am also, I, I hold space. Yeah. And so, and I think, I'm going to say something. Don't know if I should say this out loud. Uh-oh. But I think I got away with maybe five years of my practice by being good at those things as I was learning homeopathy on the run see this is what i was getting to in the beginning because you and i talked about this very early on and and honestly i have to say that um i was you know my most prescribed remedy for about carcinosin five years was carcinosin i know and and then it was (laughs) you folks she's shaking her head i know well and then after that was metarinum and then after that was nux vomica yeah now you know (laughs) And uh, Heal but I was myself. well, no, 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 no. Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was funny though. It was too. But um. But when I think it takes a lot of uh, cojones to say that, and I appreciate that you, you know, will. Oh, can I say that on a podcast? <laughs> 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 it's fine. I it's think fine. that's okay. Yeah. But because um. It, it's just moving past the ego to say, like, well, none of us is perfect. And, and, it, and you have to work really hard. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, statistically, there's all the remedies. I mean, you know, there, there's just so much to learn. And actually, in in those early days of practice, when I, you know, I'd moved to a new country and it was down, you know what, it was down on me. There was no sugar daddy, sugar mama, no nothing. No. <laughs> You know, you're earning your living as a practitioner. You've just got to get the numbers through the door. And I think, you know, there's a degree to which I I, I learned on the run. I think that's what I'm saying. And and whatever, you see, I, I do often think about that equation, the degree to which this person has got better. You know, you take a case and you're going, nice, good, cured case, or, you know, resolved and out the door. Which part of that was... The remedy, and which part of that was case management, and which part of that was me holding space. 
You know, well, wouldn't it be interesting to look at that graph? Yeah, well, here's the thing, though. And this is what I wanted to get to. It depends on the type of people that are coming to you. Oh, totally. Because if, you ah. know, you go back, if I go back to early days of my practice, there were plenty of middle-aged women with existential angst. Oh, dear. Right? And, you know, and maybe some... <laughs> And kids with ear infections. So, you know, you get the kids with ear infections or teething babies or, you know, a little digestive thing. And those are like one and dones, mm. or they used to be, right? And then you'd have the, you know, the mom or you'd have the woman with whom you have this therapeutic relationship where the, the expectation of what the remedy would do was not, there wasn't as much riding on it. Mm. I mean, I mm. honestly feel like that, that things have changed so much now. So you were fortunate to have like a run of the, of, of those kind of clients well, to get your confidence up? No, no. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't oversimplify it in that way. But I, I think that the demands now are so much different. Like, you know, for every kid with just basic ear infections, mm. there are fifteen kids with Crohn's disease, right? With pandas, with you know these, yeah. you know, every kid that comes through the door now has ticks and twitches. And, you know, and has food allergies in ways that that was not the norm, but the, you know, that was, let's say, you know, the 80-20 rule. Mm. I would say that 20 years ago, the 80-20 rule was you had 80% of people who were relatively healthy, 20% of these complex cases. And over the course of the last two decades, it's really shifted. And then there are all these other factors in which... 20 years ago, I never, ever, ever once, 10 years ago, never saw a person who had taken more than 10 different remedies in their history. Now we see people who have taken 10. I mean, that's like they've taken that yesterday. 10 spreadsheets. They've got 10 spreadsheets. People who have taken 50 remedies. I don't think I've taken 50 remedies over the course of my years of using homeopathy. I think you're right. In 30-some years? There were those moments where you take... Do you remember we went through... Do you remember when you got stung the first time? Oh, yeah. Well, that's... We uh, went through the whole materia medica. No, I got... um, Pretty quick. I was stung. I was talking about... I had two... The summers of being stung. I got stung by a hornet. You're not going to get stung this year. No. No. No, 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 no. I got stung by a hornet and my hand was like a paw for days and I was systemically sick. Then I stepped on the ground bee nest a couple years ago and got stung hundreds of times yeah 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 but even with all that the first time it happened the one when fiona your was sister here? was here yeah uh i didn't even take a remedy urticaria it was no that was the hornet oh okay urtica uh, right. urtica urns urtica yeah urtica yeah. urns mm. um urticaria <laughs> but but i mean think about it what what the you know the complexities in practice now which means that the expectation for being able to solve cases is much higher you know um we see people in our clinic you know in the teaching clinic that have you know they've got real issues and some of them have been to see different homeopaths and some of them have done you know 20 30 40 50 protocols over the course of years you know the hardest cases in my practice are these people you hear me i grouse about it all the time <laughs> you know i don't know what to do with some of these cases where they've taken yeah. re, you know nosodes repetitively for months yeah. daily do- we don't have any literature on the net effect of you know cephalinum 10m for 3 months yeah. and carcinosin 50m weekly during that same time yeah 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 that's a lot oh, yeah, yeah. well it just means that we've got to do a really good job in helping people yeah. Yeah. 
and we could do it with, you know, just straight up basic homeopathy. That was kind of a turn in the punch bowl. Well, that's the moral of the story. Turn in the punch bowl? No. I think, well, I like where we've gone. There's an arc in that conversation today. We started off with a therapeutic relationship. Anything else you want to say? Um, I love that part. Yeah, me too. I really, really like it. I love when, um, you know, working with people like, you know, some of my my earlier clients, now their kids are all grown up. That I've and I've been with these children since they yeah. were born, and now they're in college, right? And that it's so satisfying to be a part of. Oh, one of my clients um, passed away a couple of months ago. It was this older woman. She was she was ninety something, and we had worked together for a while, for a long time, and um, we just had. It was such a beautiful. Um, she made me laugh. I told her daughter, I work with three generations in that family, and her daughter wrote to me, you know, what the first day that she, you know, she shared with me that her, her mom had died, and she said she always, you know, had such a special relationship with you. And I told her, I said she was one of my favorite clients. Hey. Like, I could cry just thinking about it. She made me laugh. She was so funny. She was the one that tried, wanted you to get her a boyfriend? Boyfriend. She told me, she says, <laughs> I, I don't need whatever. I can't remember exactly what she said. She said, if you could find me a young boyfriend, I'd be just fine. <laughs> I said, I'm going to do my best. She was absolutely adorable, oh. and homeopathy helped her. You know, she was um, she had some real challenges, and you know, we kept her comfortable, and really, mm. uh, it just really helped so much. And anyway, but that therapeutic relationship is not just how we hold space, but it's also the the. It's like you know, I always use this example of a double helix in the therapeutic relationship because. You know, it's it kind of go it comes back in both ways. And like if we take it back to learning as a homeopathy student, um, you know, yet another reason why we need to see lots of cases is because I think part of why part of why during the learning process of becoming a homeopath, you say, I need that remedy, I need that remedy. Oh my gosh, that's me. We see ourselves in every remedy. To me, that's the learning of the energetic pattern. When we see it right, in another person, sort of live, we then take that on, we learn it, and we can integrate that energetic pattern into our own, you know, so that we have the capacity for pattern recognition. You don't need to take the remedy, you got it, you know, you got it by seeing it in a client, right? And so there's this reciprocity that happens in seeing the client where we are learning patterns and we're healing. And if we're able to be present and sort of with our own, like, uh, the capacity to keep our own pain aside, right? We're just this vessel when we're receiving the case. But then if we are engaging in self-reflective practice, we also can draw from that well to, to see what we've heard in another person's case, okay. that which in ourselves isn't yet healed. Mm. It also makes us a more, it makes us a safer provider because we're then, we're not projecting, you know, or allowing the client to just project onto us the things that aren't yet healed. Can I say one more thing about this? And I know we're probably getting to time, but in the, you know, in the teaching of homeopathy, sort of, you know, the development of the practitioner, and we've got like all this coursework that we do with our students. And one of the things that I love is, um, is getting students to realize that what, that the part of us that gets now the word that everybody would use is triggered. You know, I, I don't, uh, that oh, yeah. that word now means a lot of different things. Uh, so I would, I don't really use it anymore. I'm searching for better language. Velcro. Velcro, yeah. 
Yeah, that's pretty good. Thanks. It's also like Come just when we feel something, we notice a change within us when yeah. we hear something, right? I keep a notebook. I have all those notebooks on my desk. And I have one that is just, I write down whatever the person said that I oh. know elicited a feeling within me mm. so that I can explore it later. So mm. I just take a quick note and it's going to be something to remind me to go back to my journaling process around that because then I can ask myself a set of questions that's going to lead to more discovery that's going to make me I, I love what you better. just said because that 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 actually is what I genuinely authentically totally believe in and that is if you're a, if you're a, if you're engaged in a therapeutic relationship you are therefore automatically engaged in reflective practice yeah totally and you and and that posture of a reflective practitioner and that would therefore mean a bit of contemplative time some journaling yeah getting supervision when necessary yeah yeah that that keeps you centered Ah. that's unconditional positive regard that keeps you centered not losing your center too often whenever you hear uh um anything that knocks you and then you've got a process or at least a, a strategy when when you are Knocked yeah. off center. And, and you're pointing at me. Well, I am. I? Well, because I got excited because when you were talking about, you use the word congruence. So as part of that, yeah. you know, uh, and I think that, I think congruence is also part of what you're talking about because there's this congruence. I'm kind of translating it into homeopathy language now, which is it's, it's a congruent sort of energetic stance that we take. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and we, we, because when we're in that space, we're sort of malleable to be able to receive that energy. So the congruence is also um, how, you know, that I love that term, um, the homeopath is the first remedy, uh-huh. right? Because the, the first remedy is, is a similar, it's a stronger similar, right? Because we are, we are taking, we are hearing that energy and then when we give it back to the person, like at the end of a consult, I always like to say to the client, this is what I heard you say. And and then you feed it back in sort of a, a potentized form, right? So that's the stronger similar. Um, Jeremy calls it the poker principle. I see you and I raise you one, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Um, and it's like that way in which the practitioner holds space. And then, you know, when we can say back to the client what we've heard in a synthesized and potentized form, they're getting the remedy. Even if we don't find the, you know, the substance, that part of the therapeutic relationship is also super healing. Mm. Yeah? And guess what? It's what? not psychotherapy. At all. So that is what I don't want to hear, you know? I believe that what everything we've spoken about is not, you know... Totally. Go do Jungian psychoanalysis or any of that stuff. All of that stuff's fine. Yeah. But... Um, that's not what we're talking about. No, I mean, yep. when clients ask for advice like that, and sometimes they will, and I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm not a therapist. We could talk about it through the homeopathy lens. It's like you need a decoder ring to put it into that context. This was a... This was a so a babel fish in your ear. A bagel fish? No, no, a babel fish. Oh, babel fish, yes. <laughs> I'm, see, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> you hungry. Are, you are hungry. <laughs> Or ba- right. Like bagel fish. Wait, lox? It's, are we having bagels and lox? It's time to go, folks. Um, <laughs> that is clearly the key that we have nice, finished. Nice. Um, All right. Different than I thought, as usual. Yeah, good. Shall we do it again? Uh, yes. Okay. All right. See you, folks. See you, everyone. Bye. AHE is changing the face of homeopathy education by raising the bar through rigorous academics and unparalleled clinical training 
delivered live through the soulful use of cutting-edge technology. AHE prepares its students to become fully-rounded homeopathic practitioners from anywhere in the world. Apply today and ask about the early enrollment discount at ahe.online.